Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hmm. Is this on? On? Hmm. Big day today, huh? <clears throat> Whether you're leaving in a couple of days or uh, just in the middle of the retreat, you can probably feel the energy one way or another um, of the of the transition that we're in. <clears throat> and uh, it's a really rich and poignant part of the retreat. Um, I, I hope for those who are leaving, uh, you don't think of it, oh, the retreat is really over now, uh, because there's so much to learn in this next couple of days about connecting with others, staying connected with yourself, <clears throat> toppling forward, coming back to here, and for those who are staying to just feel the energy of departing, as it says in the, in the five um, recollections, um, everything near and dear to me will be, I will be separated from. And so there's a, a letting go of your uh, perhaps uh, Dharma buddy neighbors or uh, work meditation, um, deep relationships that form over pot washing or doing the dishes and, um, and also um, just the, the shift in the energy. So I, I really also for you uh, encourage you not to think of this as, uh, oh, this is just an obstacle in my retreat, but this is a, an important part of the retreat, just learning to be centered and mindful in the transitions of of the going and then the coming. <clears throat> and we'll talk more about that for, for both, um, both groups um, in the coming day or, and, or two. Uh, and I wanted to talk tonight, hopefully this, uh, this will be relevant to both those who are staying and those who are leaving. And I wanted to uh, as I thought about it, um, it, it feels actually fitting that I uh, continue with the the last few steps from the um, the series that I've been giving on um, seeing the Dharma practice as a, a path of happiness. These uh, ten wholesome states of uh, that I call awakening joy, and uh, as you probably have gotten. Um, throughout these uh, almost six weeks, this process uh, requires tremendous patience. Even when you see how your mind can play tricks on you and how you can get lost, um, you still can get lost and it can be very humbling. So I wanted to start out with a, a contemporary prayer that perhaps uh, will be helpful for you. <clears throat> This, I, I first learned this from my, uh, my good buddy, Howie Cohn, a uh, spirit rock teacher. And perhaps uh, a number of you have sat with him. Uh, but it's also, um, it became a greeting card. I don't know if just enough people heard it and, uh, or maybe where he got it from, but I never saw it uh, as a greeting card until a couple of years after I heard it. So here's the greeting card. <clears throat> this is the contemporary prayer. Dear God, so far today, I've done okay. I haven't gossiped or lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, crabby, mean, nasty, selfish, bitchy, or overindulgent. And I'm very grateful for that. But dear God, in a few minutes, I'm gonna get out of bed. <laughs> and then I'm probably gonna need a lot more help. <laughs> Amen.
we can have best of intentions and know the teachings and um, can share them with others, uh, but it's, it's a whole other level to really embody them, which is what we're doing here little by little, uh, day by day, drop by drop, as, as the Buddha says. <clears throat> so as we explore these, um, these last uh, steps, um, keeping in mind that this is about um, cultivating with a spirit of patience and just facing in the right direction and showing up with as much sincerity um, and letting the Dharma uh, support you and life support you in that. So the um, eighth wholesome state <clears throat> so far, can, a quick review, intention, mindfulness, gratitude, opening to the difficult, opening to the dukkha as a path to joy. And you have heard some talks on that. Guy gave a beautiful talk just, uh, just the other night on that. Um, integrity, sila, letting go, and uh, loving ourselves. Um, this next one is a source of tremendous happiness and well-being for all of us uh, when we are experiencing it, and that's a connection with others. We are um, social beings, species, we're social animals. And when we don't have that connection with others, we feel very disconnected, and lonely, sad, not feeling that others understand us. Even if we're around a whole lot of people, even if we're around, sometimes we're around the, the, those closest to us, we can still have a feeling of disconnection. But when we do feel connected, it's, it's an embodied understanding of interconnectedness <clears throat> and a source of, of tremendous joy. I, I know that I've experienced that uh, having uh, just the, the privilege and opportunity to, to meet with the people that, that I have. You know, sometimes it's just um, sitting there and sharing the space and, and, and feeling love, really, feeling metta. Wow, what a neat being who's dedicated to, to waking up. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm sure you've had uh, many moments of that here on, uh, on the retreat these, these last weeks. And we've talked about a couple of elements of this, uh, about forgiveness with those who we're close to, that it's hard to, that our heart is, is, is for whatever reason uh, contracted around. And uh, metta, loving kindness, we've had talks on metta and we've been practicing it a, uh, a few times, uh, a couple of times each week. Um, so I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about, um, about this and then go on to the, um, to the last two. I uh, just wanna say, um, a few points about connecting with others that I find really helpful. Uh, the, the near enemy of metta, as I think was mentioned, I mentioned it when, when we first started, the near enemy is attachment, where not only do we feel connected, but we want more. We either are afraid of that person um, taking our love or disappointing us, or in some way we want something from them, which is very different than the generous heart of loving kindness. And so uh, this will be particularly uh, something that people who are leaving uh, in a few days, uh, I'm sure will uh, we'll get an opportunity to um, to practice, uh, and those closest to us, uh, when we feel metta, 
it's lovely, it's beautiful. When we have an agenda or attachment, uh, it's, it changes things. Uh, and those who are staying here, uh, you have, I'm sure, your, your own experience in having uh, a genuine uh, generosity of heart with your fellow yogis or um, teachers or, and more um, staff. And, and then there's times when we get disappointed. They didn't quite do it the way we wished or they didn't do their job the way uh, I would have liked them to or, or you can fill in the blanks. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? So I just wanted to share a little exercise that, can, uh, that I, I find helpful to drive this point home. Okay, and you, you probably have seen by now that besides just giving um, didactic points, I find it uh, more helpful to, um, to experience in real time. So here's a, a little uh, exploration in the difference between metta and attachment. Go inside, if you will, and uh, bring to mind someone who's really important to you, who you feel close to, and who's an important relationship. Usually we say in metta, a non-complicated relationship. This one can be complicated, okay? <laughs> And um, first get in touch with how much you really um, are grateful there in your life, if that's so. And uh, see them in front of you and just get in touch with wishing them well, enjoying seeing them truly happy. And you might think of them in a happy moment and just send some the, the basic method to them. Oh, may you, may you really be happy and, and know that I, I wish that for you. And notice how that feels to just wish them well. May you know I really want to see you happy and enjoy seeing you truly happy. And now think of a time or times when you hope they don't disappoint you, where you hope they come through or they'll, they'll meet your hopes and expectations. When you want something from them, when there's an agenda Please don't disappoint me. And notice how that feels when you get into that mode of wanting something from them, how it feels inside, in the body, in the mind, in the heart. Okay, now take a nice breath. I won't leave you here, don't worry. Take a nice deep breath. And once again, just wish them well. See their smiling face and enjoying the connection. Oh, may you really be happy. It's truly what I want for you. May you be happy and peaceful inside and be at ease. And once again, notice how, how that feels inside. Okay, if you'd like, you can open your eyes. You notice the difference? You probably noticed the difference, didn't you? It's amazing how those closest to us in a moment can be either a source of joy or a source of 
contraction and, and pain. And of course, we, we want people to, um, uh, to be responsible and we have certain uh, understandable expectations that they will act with integrity. Uh, but you can't, it's hard enough to control one mind, this one in here. Forget about controlling those around you. And it's so interesting that when, you know how it feels when, when you just feel somebody's well-wishing and, and love, you want to enter into their space. And what is it like when you feel they have an agenda for you? It's so natural, that energy um, exchange, that when there's something that's wanting, someone wants something, we contract. And so uh, it becomes a practice in itself of just really wishing well, even when they when they disappoint us, you know, it's important to say what's so and not just say, oh, well, that's cool. But to understand, as I said once before, that we all have our own internal reality. And when theirs intersects with yours in a way that doesn't meet with your expectations, partly it's, okay, what am I bringing to this? And how can I still have a, a spirit of of friendliness and kindness and let them know that whatever is going on, um, I care about them. Mm-hmm. And one of the practices in this uh, meta realm that I find really helpful, not just with those close to us, but everyone, is uh, to keep looking for the good inside. You know, we talked about confirmation bias at the the very beginning. What you look for, you will likely draw out. Perhaps I said this already, but it's, it bears repeating. If you look for what's wrong in somebody, or how they're going to blow it, not only will you confirm your hypothesis because that's what the brain looks uh, looks for but you also set up an energy like you just we just touched but if you look for the good and keep on tuning into that not only will your brain likely more likely confirm that bias but you actually have an effect on bringing that out of others it's how it works. You know, if, you, if you're in a room and somebody, you feel somebody sees all your flaws, you feel flawed or defensive. If you sense that even if they know all the, the foibles about you, they're just tuning into your goodness, you feel that goodness. It just draws it out. So this is a, an interesting and um, rich practice that has been a main practice of mine for many years. I first got into it from um, when I was inspired by Neem Karoli Baba from uh, Be Here Now. I've mentioned Ramdas and Be Here Now and his guru who is very um, much in my heart, uh, Neem Karoli Baba, would say the best form to worship God is every form. That's a big, big practice in itself. But I, and I just kind of translate it into just keep on looking for the divine in as, as much as you can. It's a little bit harder for, in, in some people to see than others. And you don't want to be naive. You want to protect yourself from danger. But if you keep on looking for the goodness in people, you are, you become an agent of drawing that out. And when goodness is coming towards you, another aspect of this is to really let in that love. When somebody opens a door or smiles at you or 
gives you a, a warm hello. Um, don't miss it, as I've said. Feel that connection. And then if you want to go one step further, just seeing them as an agent of life letting you know that you are loved. Once you start tuning into all the goodwill around you, you'll find it everywhere, or much more than, uh, than we normally tune into. And just feel how much life loves you and wants to support you. As you feel that, you can't hold it all. The only thing to do is just send it back. And what I call being a meta-recycling machine. You, know, you just let in the love and send it right out. It's a good way to go through, go through your life. And again, not to be naive, but to give people also the benefit of the doubt and see their goodness. And not only see their goodness, but when there's happiness and joy around, the, the other connecting practice is um, mudita, which we, we haven't done in a formal way here, but it's a fantastic practice. And sometimes mudita, finding happiness at the happiness of others. And sometimes it's a little bit harder. Compassion Okay, they're suffering. Oh, my heart goes out to them. Uh, loving kindness. Oh, yeah, or affinity. But enjoying others' happiness? Sometimes that's a stretch. I, I love this line I came across from uh, Montaigne, the French philosopher, who said, there's something not altogether too displeasing in the misfortune of our friends. <laughs> I'm sure you're not looking for misfortune for your friends, but there, there can be that element of, oh, well, mm, oh, my heart goes out to them, and yeah, I know what that's like. But when somebody has great success, there can be this sense of, oh, well, what about me? The comparing mind can get in the way. And mudita is a practice that just tunes into the fact that there's more happiness in the world. There's not a quota on happiness. If there were, then if somebody was in a room with you and they were filled with rage, then you would say, oh great, they've got the rage so I can be here and just, uh, that's theirs and not mine. But we get affected by it, don't we? And in the same way, we can get affected by others joy and happiness. We do when we're around kids or when we're rooting for someone. You know that mudita is really, I think of, as this feeling of rooting for. It's such a beautiful quality we have. Yes, go. You can do it. And there's nothing in it for you except seeing somebody else's success and joy. You know, that's why we go to movies and we're rooting for the heroine or the hero. Come on, you can do it. Uh, because we have, uh, we have that connection and we just want to see that success and we feel a connection with them. And mudita is a beautiful practice because it's just seeing there's a bit more happiness in the world. And you can get what I call a free joy ride just in tuning into someone else's well-being. The Dalai Lama says, if your happiness depends upon your own well-being only, you have a very limited, um, you have very limited possibilities. But if it can be activated by the well-being and happiness of others, you up your odds by seven billion. <laughs> so to just tune into, oh, and looking it around, you know, while you're in the line at the supermarket or uh, in, in the, on the movie uh, line, or you see it around, oh good, there's a little bit more happiness. And the mudita phrases that I like, may your happiness continue and may your happiness grow. And you feel good within yourself. <clears throat> so, 
This is the connection with others. And that leads to the uh, ninth source of well-being and, uh, and joy, which is compassion, which is the, the full flowering of that feeling of connection. It's seeing our practice in a much bigger context. It's the natural expression of connection. And as has been said here before, the, the classic definition of compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering of others. We resonate with that. We have mirror neurons that light up when others are going through a hard time. It lights up in our brain in the same place. Compassion is one of the four Brahmaviharas or sublime states. And I always find it interesting that compassion, the pre, a, a prerequisite for compassion is suffering. Suffering is not sublime, but the caring heart that gets elicited is sublime. That we are wired up to care. Isn't that amazing? We're wired up to care. That's a direct expression of the interconnectedness that we can experience. And I, I wanted to share with you this little uh, anecdote about how much we are wired up with, to everyone and everything around us. And this is from uh, my, one of my favorite books on compassion uh, called The Compassionate Life by Mark Ian Barish. And he, um, it's a beautiful book, and he, he, he talks about going to this um, uh, this uh, laboratory uh, um, uh, enterprise uh, out in California called HeartMath, where they, it's, a, it's a more scientifically oriented uh, ways of developing uh, heart qualities. And uh, this scientist there put him in this room um, next to a Petri dish with yogurt in it and he placed some electrons uh, in the dish uh, to, um, that, that could tell um, different responses, responses. And when he sat down, the needle just sat there. And then he asked Mark to think of a deeply disturbing emotional response. And this is Mark writing. He's a great writer, by the way. Rummaging through my memory, I had a sudden flash of my sister's death, and I was flooded with a surge of grief. At that very moment, all by itself, the needle on the meter buried itself in the red zone, then oscillated wildly back and forth. We hadn't touched anything. The box was hooked up to nothing except the yogurt, strawberry, my favorite. Nothing in the room had changed but my feelings. When I switched my mental focus back to my surroundings, the needle went still. Okay, McCready said, now think of an incident of physical pain. I called to mind a recent medical checkup that had involved taking several blood samples. The needle kicked fitfully like a man whose sleep had been disturbed. He had me remember a moment of profound embarrassment. I'm not telling. And again, the needle switched abruptly as if in response. What was being revealed here, he claimed, was that all living creatures, from microorganisms to pets to people, resonate to the field of the human heart. And we resonate to the field of life around us too when we tune in. So developing this quality of caring and compassion is a beautiful thing, but we can get overwhelmed by the suffering around us. So it's really important to know what our limits are. 
And this is where compassion needs to be balanced with equanimity, where you can only do so much. It's not up to you to save the world, and, but it's up to you, I think, to care about the world and know what your capacities are. And that balance between equanimity and caring um, is an ongoing exploration. If you're feeling so distant and spacious that there is indifference, this is the near enemy of equanimity. And um, perhaps you're a little bit too far removed. But if you're too close and feeling overwhelmed, that's not going to be so helpful either. And so to just keep on adjusting that place that cares and yet can remain centered. There's a, that beautiful line from T.S. Eliot, teach me to care and not to care. How both can uh, can be held and really allow you to be there for people in a in that much more skillful a way because often what is needed is just a loving presence to hold someone's pain and this is something particularly for those who really want to um, go in and make a difference with their loved ones and they're touched very deeply by, uh, by the pain and suffering around of, of others. Um, at some point, it's not so helpful to be so touched that you're overwhelmed with that caring. You know, if you're having a hard time and somebody comes up to you and says, oh, this is so awful, this is killing me. Oh, I, what can we do? I, I can't stand it, I really, how can we get you out of your pain? How does that feel? Then you gotta take care of them, no thank you. But if somebody is just saying, oh wow, this is really hard, I can, I can see. I just want you to know I really care and I'm here for you and with you, ah, you become, uh, they become a healing environment for you to just experience and go through what you need to go through. There, there are studies that have shown that um, if you're going, if somebody is going through um, physical pain as well as an emotional pain, if they're holding another person's hand their capacity and threshold uh, for pain is much, much greater because you're sharing the pain and you don't feel so alone and disconnected. So to just be there for, for another, that's enough. There's a story that I love that's coming to mind of uh, Leo Biscaglia, this uh, uh, wonderful wisdom teacher who passed away some years ago. Mm. And he, he was asked to be a judge for um, a contest, the most caring person. And uh, he talks about this, this uh, contest. And the winner of the contest was a four-year-old child whose mother shared the story of this neighbor, next-door neighbor, whose wife passed away. And he was uh, in, in deep grief. Uh, mourning the loss of, of his, his partner of many years. And he was sitting on a porch, uh, on the porch across from them and, uh, and just sobbing. And the boy, without saying anything, just decided to um, go across and uh, go up the steps to his, his neighbor's uh, house and uh, sat with, uh, with the man. And uh, after a while, uh, the mother noticed that the man just started calming down and, and came to uh, more centeredness. Uh, and then the, the boy came back to his house and, and the mother said, what did you say to him? 
was amazing how he just calmed down. And the boy said, oh, I didn't say anything. I just sat in his lap and helped him cry. I love that story. We don't need to fix when what's called for is just a loving presence. Sometimes what's called for is more than just a loving presence, is really making a difference in the world and having what can be called fierce compassion. So this is not just about, um, oh well, uh, I wish them luck and I'll just send them metta. As I said earlier, we're in a, in a race between fear and consciousness and we need as much caring and consciousness as, as we can get. And there are those in power who um, cause harm and hurt out of confusion, out of greed, out of hatred. And so it's understandable to be outraged and upset. Uh, as one teacher says, uh, if, if you're not outraged, you're, you're, you're not awake, you're asleep with some of the things that go on in the world. But as the Buddha said, hatred never ceases by hatred. This is an ancient and eternal law. Hatred ceases by love alone. So, how to be an agent of compassion in this very difficult world <clears throat> and have the courage to make a difference? <clears throat> Here's some um, quotes from Martin Luther King that I love, one very much like the Buddha, who say, he says, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of di diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through, though violence, through violence you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate, so it goes, returning violence for violence, multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And again, he says, the nonviolent approach does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. It first does something to the hearts and souls of those committed to it. It gives them new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage they did not know they had. Another couple of quotes from Martin Luther King. He says, um, you have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. You have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying attempt, contempt. So if you feel contempt, you're not adding to the situation. You're not gonna be heard. Uh, there might be another way. The, the Martin Luther King also says, uh, what was it? Um, I have, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And the Buddha says, even if bandits capture you, did we talk about simile of the saw here? Even if bandits capture you and are sawing off your leg, he goes through a whole lot of steps before he gets to this punchline in the, in the discourse, one who really understands my teachings does not um, uh, react with hatred. That's a pretty high bar, isn't it? <clears throat> Hopefully you won't have to 
deal with that. But what he's saying, instead of, he's not saying, oh, yes, please go right ahead. And, uh, but he's saying that um, hatred poisons the heart, but if you can see the underlying confusion of somebody who would willfully hurt another and feel compassion for that, as well as fierce compassion that says no, and taking a very courageous, strong stand, then uh, it's so much more inspiring. And that is also being willing to see the good in others. This is from Nelson Mandela. Just seeing that inside most of us, unless you're very wounded from an early age, most, if, if somebody loves their dog or their child, then there's a place in them that wants to, to love. And this is Nelson Mandela. He said, I never lost hope for this great, that this great transformation would occur, ending of apartheid, not only because of the great heroes we had, but because of the courage of the ordinary men and women of my country. I always knew that deep down in every human heart, there is mercy and generosity. No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Even in the grimmest times in prison, when my comrades and I were pushed to our limits, I would see a glimmer of humanity in one of the guards perhaps for just a second, but it was enough to reassure me and keep me going. Man's goodness is a flame that can be hidden, but never extinguished. And you perhaps know the story of Angulimala, who had set out to kill a thousand people and uh, had gotten to 999 when he reached the Buddha, who broke his spell and he woke up, as the story goes, from the error of his ways, and he went on to become fully enlightened. So, not to give up on anyone, but also to be very strong in your actions and to have the courage to use your practice in a way that creates uh, more justice and goodness in this world. I want to read a passage from a, an essay that I love by Bhikkhu Bodhi, the premier translator of, of the Pali Canon, all the thick books, the Majjhima Nikaya and the Samyutta Nikaya and uh, Anguttara Nikaya, all of those are um, translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. But he also, also in the last decade or so has become a very inspiring activist for the good. And this is his essay that you can find online called A Challenge to Buddhists. I'll just read a, uh, an excerpt. Um, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. A challenge to Buddhists. 
And like I said, you can't save the world, but you can find what really touches you and just express your caring be, as, as a, a beautiful um, gift of your practice as um, Andrew Harvey, who's been uh, an inspiration for me. He has a great book called Sacred Activism. No, called The Hope, A Guide for Sacred Activism. He says, follow your heartbreak. Follow where your heart is breaking and, um, and see what, how you can make a difference as uh, Angelus Arian, another inspiring teacher, a uh, woman of wisdom says, action absorbs anxiety. Action absorbs anxiety. You can feel helpless. What can I do? You put yourself into action and it expresses all of that caring energy. <clears throat> and part of that also, I feel, means holding a positive vision of the possibilities this is really crazy times. But here we are, as I think I said earlier, more conscious than ever. There's more consciousness than ever, as well as more insanity and greed, hatred and delusion. And we're in that race between fear and consciousness. Sooner or later, we're going to wake up. That's how suffering works. It wakes us up, at both on personal level and on a societal level. So the way I figure it is sooner or later we'll wake up. Why not do everything we can to make it on the sooner side? So there's less suffering because there's going to be suffering. There is suffering, huge suffering right now. And... Uh, uh, it, it's not going to get uh, any. It's not going to get better for a while. But we can do our part. And holding a positive vision, and seeing uh, Andrew Harvey, another another uh, teaching that he has. You know, you you go through uh, the the famous what Saint John of the Cross called the dark night of of the soul, where you see your your fears, I mentioned that before, and you come out the other end. And he says, one way to think of it, we're in a dark night of the species where we are going through the crucible of our deepest fears and that will help wake us up, a reboot to the system. Um, and we can do our part. So I think before we finish with this, this part, I uh, want to just uh, share with you um, something that, uh, a way that perhaps you can see your practice in the context of making a difference in the world. And this is, a, you know, the classic bodhisattva vow. You can make your own bodhisattva vow. And um, I invite you to do it with me right now. Just close your eyes. You've been practicing for six weeks and some will continue on for three months. And to make up your own version of a vow, to use your practice to help relieve suffering in this world and bring about a bit more well-being and happiness. And the, the basic principle is just seeing how your own happiness can be of benefit to others and your own caring can touch others. Just take a few moments to ask yourself what words would sincerely convey that wish in a way that uplifts your heart. You might say something like, may my caring and happiness lead to the happiness of others, whatever it is. I'll be quiet for a moment. When you find a, a phrase that really resonates with you, silently state those words as a promise to yourself. 
and just connect with the sincerity of intention expressed. And notice how it feels to practice in that bigger context for the benefit of all. Remember that that promise and the more you see yourself in that in that light uh, and your practice in that, that light, the the more inspired you'll be about practicing and about uh, sharing and caring. <clears throat> so now We'll get to the last of these in the time we have left, which I call the joy of simply being. Where you're not trying to do anything. All the, all the other states, those wholesome states, uh, are about cultivating. But I hope you are seeing the real power in your practice in letting go of trying when you can just relax and rest in this moment where you don't have to make anything happen that life is already here happening right now. Have you seen that from time to time? I want to find a. Here it is. This is coming out of a relaxed connection with the moment and with life. Nibbana for everyone. Carol talked about it uh, a, a few nights ago. It's just letting go of the struggle. Now, I'll quote actually from our, from two of my colleagues. This is uh, Sally talking about this. She says, when I let my mind really appreciate what is right in front of me, the clouds or a rainbow or a bird flying by, there is a sense of wonder and amazement at the richness of life. To truly open to that, the mind has to be still. There's a sense of aliveness relating to the outside, but the internal experience is one of stillness, of stopping and connecting with life. It's just stillness and aliveness without a lot of, a lot of mental content to it. The joy of simply being. And here's Guy. It's not that we have to do anything special, but rather when we stop striving, Natural happiness is there to be touched. Our basic nature is peaceful, and that peace brings a kind of joy. All we have to do to find it is to stop disturbing it. When the body calms down and the mind can just relax and rest, there's a joy and delight in that exper experience which is very pleasurable in itself and very renewing. There's a feeling of the batteries being recharged, aliveness refreshing itself. So what this requires is a sense of trust and surrender. Instead of trying to make the moment happen or make any experience happen, it's just allowing and receiving life to be moved through you. And the, the image that I I find uh, helpful in this is uh, that of learning to swim. Do you remember when you were learning to swim and somebody put you in a pool and they said, uh, go ahead, just, just relax. And you're kind of going up and down. Relax, I'm going down here, right? And then after a while, the magic, when you, when you figured out treading water, oh, oh, this is so much easier than 
and flailing about. And then there was that magic moment where you just stopped all trying and leaned back. And the water was there ready to support you all along. Going from flailing to floating. And that's a bit of how practice is as well. And I I know that many of you uh, have touched this. Uh, It's been so beautiful to see, oh, I don't have to struggle so much. Life is really here for me, ready to support me. And in that trust, something quite extraordinary happens. And that is besides the enjoying of the non-struggle, you also tune in to all the messages that life has for you. You tune into um, a connection to the wisdom that's right inside, that's usually not available because there's so much static going on. You know those times when something becomes clear, when you're not trying to figure it out? There's a line I love from uh, the Third Zen Patriarch. It says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. That's often how it works. But we're busy trying to solve our life. And for those who are uh, about to go, you might have had a thought or two about, oh, what am I going to do about this? And how can I do that? And oh, what am I going to do with my life? You know. <clears throat> What am I going to do when I grow up? That's a question that that you can be asking when you're in your 60s, 70s, or 80s. What am I going to do when I grow up? (laughs) But really, it's about listening inside to getting a sense of what your journey, uh, how it's unfolding. And you don't have to figure it out. In fact, you can... You can't really figure it out. You don't have enough information. You can have a plan. I think it's a really good thing to have a plan. But then you see what the plan is, how it unfolds. And I'll share with you, uh, as we come to an end, to um, a story about uh, my own practice and my own life. When I was at a crossroads in my life, this is in case you are one that likes to know what's going to be happening and, and likes to hopefully plan. Um, I was at this crossroads. I'd been teaching school for about uh, for 10 years in New York City. And, um, and it was starting to get old. I loved teaching for many years and still in touch with, uh, just was speaking the other day with my fifth grade student who is now 53. Uh, and said, Mr. Barris, I think I'd like to talk with you. Um, and I loved it for many years. But at the, after a while, it's, when teaching, you don't have the energy for it, it can, it can get old quickly because you have to meet the kids uh, in that fresh way. And it was starting, I just felt that there was, the Dharma had already hit me deeply and I knew this is what I wanted to devote my life to. But I was scared about leaving my teaching position in New York City where I was uh, earning $17,000 a year, which was big bucks for me in those days. And uh, I didn't know how I would you know, make ends meet or what I would do. I didn't know what my life was going to be about. So I thought about continuing teaching or about coming up here. I had already sat a three-month retreat that this is uh, that, that fall. Um, no, I, yeah, I had sat a three-month retreat. This is, that was 76, and I taught the second half of the year. And uh, maybe coming up to IMS and being on staff, or 
going to um, Asia or moving out to California. All viable options. And I didn't want to blow it. Right? And I went round and round in my mind and um, not knowing what to do. And uh, over the summer, this is the summer of, of 77, I, um, I was out in Colorado each year um, going to Naropa and I had gone to this psychic um, a number of times before who was really helpful, a very wise man named Reverend Miller. He looked like Colonel Sanders, um, almost like the spitting image of Colonel Sanders, but very wise. I don't know how wise Colonel Sanders is, but... Um, and uh, he charged $5 a reading. So it wasn't, he wasn't in it for the money. I said, I'm gonna go to Reverend Miller and, and ask him what I should do. So I gave him all my options. I said, what should I do here? I, I, I'm just driving myself crazy. And he thought for a moment, he said, well, I'm not gonna tell you what to do. Oh God, I, maybe I blew the $5, you know. <laughs> he said, but I will tell you one thing. I said, yeah? He said, doesn't matter. I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about. <laughs> and I really thought I blew the $5. And then he's, he believed in spirit guides. That was the way he kind of held things. And he said, you know, if you're frozen in indecision and paralyzed and afraid to take the next step, your guides can't help you. But when you get a sense of what's needed or what given your information seems to be the next step, as you take it, your guides can help you and life will unfold. And if you start going in one direction, you'll know, oh yeah, this feels right, or it might be you start going in that direction, say, no, this isn't the right one, I need to try another one. Or you might start going off in that direction and something opens up that you never would have thought of before, that a door has opened just because you put yourself in motion. So he said, it really doesn't matter. Your life will keep on unfolding. You just keep on listening instead of needing to figure out. Because right in here will be um, the wisdom that you need. Best $5 I ever spent. <laughs> and that's where this trust in the unfolding comes in. As Ramdas says in, uh, in Be Here Now, he says, the next message you hear will be the next message you hear. But life is giving us messages all along. And if we can be open enough to hear it, then we'll keep on um, connecting to what's true for us. And we don't have to do this alone, whether it's connection or compassion or being. The beautiful thing, particularly in uh, in our, uh, in this environment is seeing the power of like-minded friendship. Whether you are sitting here on the retreat or you're about to go home, uh, having good friends to help you stay connected with the wisdom and the courage to go through the hard times and be here for you and you be there for them, that makes all the difference. So I'll just close with this poem that um, I love called Sangha by Dana Falls, who I've read from before. She says, teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our souls. When we stand side by side, let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders, each for the other, that the path of transformation passes through the flames.
To take one step is courageous. To stay on the path day after day, choosing the unknown, facing yet another fear together, that is nothing short of grace. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Enjoy your evening, your walking, and coming back for one last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.